Well, I learned a, uh, a new word this week, or rather I learned a familiar word that is being used as a different part of speech. Platform, as it turns out, is not just a noun, it is also a verb. Someone can be platformed by a media outlet or another person of influence. They can be given a broader audience. Social media, of course, is a platform that platforms you platforms anyone who, especially with enough creativity or absurdity or something other humans will read or watch or listen to or share, can broaden their influence and their platform. In the church world, a talented pastor of a local church or anyone with a well-produced blog or a podcast can become a national influencer via these platforms. In broader society, a charismatic personality can become an influential quasi-expert on virtually anything, on politics, right, or current affairs. And if it gets platformed, any bit of news or information anywhere, regardless of quality or accuracy, can instantly become news and information everywhere. This is what it means to be platformed. And... There's no governing body or any societal standard regulating what or who should. Are as far apart as virtually anything else in our polarized society. Question is, though, how much of all this should we be trying to, all this platform stuff and people should be trying to see and to know, to think about, or to care about. I suppose the idea is that we can regulate it all for ourselves, right? Because as they say, information wants to be free. Have you ever heard that? But are we actually regulating it? And how well? And what's the cost as to whether or not we're doing it well? What we have agreed upon, at least functionally, is a way of life, isn't it? Media saturation. In a sense, we're trying to live everywhere with everyone all the time, with all the issues, whether or not our participation actually can or will amount to anything fruitful for us or for the issues we care about. Now, we can settle for talking about, we can post about, Economic, social, political, and yes, church problems in America, broadly. And we're most often just kind of boxing the air. Do you feel that way? A little sense of futility under that, but also a little bit of a sense of, of, of it's kind of invigorating to have an opinion about these things, to be bothered by what mostly amounts to an abstraction when compared to the here and the now. It's not that we shouldn't care. The question is, how can we actually go about caring in a way that's fruitful, in a way that's meaningful, in a way that's real? How can we avoid confusing nothing with something? In his letter to Philemon, Paul is doing something with someone, somewhere that sows the tiny seeds of the gospel in the social and economic realities of his day. He's showing two friends and fellow believers, how to be reconciled, despite everything that their history, their culture, and even their government has told and is telling them. Paul, for all the growing influence that he has, his platform, he isn't knowingly writing a timeless gospel polemic 
against the ills of systemic poverty and the social indignities of his time. He's not writing it. What is he doing? He's living it. And he's calling Philemon to live it. Work the leaven of kingdom equity into the lump of his own home and his own community. Because if justice and reconciliation are real, folks, they are local, first and foremost. There's the answer to the question about why we put, if it's real, it's local on the back of our t-shirt. I've turned it into a sermon. Philemon lives in Colossae, in the region of Phrygia, between modern-day Athens, Greece, and Antalya, Turkey. Paul hasn't been there yet, but he's been in Ephesus, which is 100 miles away on the coast, where Philemon probably first heard him preach the gospel and came to faith. And now Philemon, his wife Aphia, and likely their son Archippus are hosting a church in their home. So already the seeds of the gospel had clearly grown branches of generosity and hospitality in their life. Paul writes this letter around the same time that he writes to the church meeting in their home, the Colossians. And he wrote this to them, and there's some important encouragement and challenge in that letter for the whole church. Philemon gets his own letter, doesn't he? He gets his own encouragement and challenge. It landed on his own doorstep. And like virtually every wealthier person in the Gentile world, Philemon owned slaves or bond servants. It wasn't chattel slavery in early, as in early America, but bond servants in that day were still treated as property. They were an embodiment of their debt and of their powerlessness. They were simply the work they did or could do. They were utility. They were tools, so to speak, that made the world go round in that day. They were like electricity or oil or refrigeration or trucking in our day. Society was built on the system that was built on their backs. Poverty meant slavery for most poor people because slavery in that class system meant survival for most poor people. We find out Philemon, Philemon had a slave named Onesimus who has run away. This is a capital offense in that day. He deserved, at least according to the legal system, to be killed. He could legally be put to death and Philemon could turn him in or he could just simply make life a whole lot harder on him. These were viable options if the system is going to work, slaves can't just run off without consequences. Imagine if they all did that. And you can hear the arguments from all the standard bearers of the status quo of that day that served them and preserved their place at the top. The original heresy and sin of so-called Christianity in early America echoed these same priorities. What? Productivity over humanity. Greed over the gospel. Class over community. Nation over kingdom. And this still echoes. But the problem, so to speak, is that Onesimus, the slave, is following Jesus too. When he ran away, it appears he went to the big city of Ephesus, maybe to disappear. He received the gospel, and now he's Paul's friend and helper, serving him faithfully. Not as a slave, but as a spiritual son. I am sending him back to you, Paul tells Philemon in verse 12 very heart.
in their hearts for the sake of the gospel. He's preparing to make this shocking appeal to Philemon. He's calling him to receive Onesimus, not as a slave, but as what? A brother. Proclaimed, even in this radical way, it will become effective, he says, for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of His point is this. If a slave owner like Philemon would embrace the liberating demands of the gospel, the deeper good of the kingdom under the lordship of Jesus will come to light. The full knowledge will be on display. He's saying this is the good that's in us. And this is how it goes public. Make no mistake about it. Paul is actually willing to pay whatever monetary price he has to if Philemon refuses this. But the real win is what? What's the real prize here? It's parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. And watch what he says here, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He's not his brother in the flesh. Your brother, not only in the Lord, but in the flesh. There's a mutuality, new creation. It's a new fundamental humanity that changes the status quo. And as far as Paul is concerned, it's changed their bloodline. It's that radical. And the real win is for the gospel of reconciliation and mutuality to inform and to transform everything else that seems to be at stake. Everything. On the other side of this hard moment, Paul is saying, is a better reality than you could have imagined. Now, Paul appeals to this. He says, I could have simply said, stop it. Well, Onesimus is the oppressed, and Philemon, you are the oppressor. Let him go. Let him go now. He could have railed against the system and even been right to do so. Whether or not it would have made a difference, he could have even powered up on him. But instead, he reaches out a hand to both men, and he stands as a living cross between them. He will pay the price, so to speak, of loving them both to the next level of faithfulness, of knowledge, of proclamation, of embodiment of the gospel. And if it can happen for them, then and there it can happen anywhere and for anyone. It will plant the seed in a heart, in a relationship, in a tiny church meeting in their house in Colossae, in the region of Phrygia, and maybe even out into Asia Minor. But it has to be embodied first. It has to be lived. One of the really compelling things about Scripture, to me, is that it is so personal and so situated. It's local. It doesn't evade particularity or obscurity. a larger, more sweeping, spiritual, and ethical, and political landscape. It doesn't first preach principles and propositions to the faceless masses. It's not that kind of revelation. It comes in the flesh. 
We get the obscure and often hard to pronounce names of nobodies from the ancient Near East called by name in their hometowns to follow Jesus. And this is exactly how the gospel is by nature. It's personal but not private. It is a seed sown in people and through their relationships. It's not wholesale, not really, not at its best, not at its core, not at its most fruitful. At its best, maybe even by its very nature, the true platform for the gospel is always the here and now. It doesn't need the TV or the internet, not really. It needs exactly what Jesus designed it to be when he called 12 men from the region of Galilee to follow him, to eat with him, to deal with one another. When 120 anxious people were in Jerusalem waiting for the promised Holy Spirit, when Peter preached and 3,000 people actually went home to their hometowns and their people with something of the gospel, a seed to be shared and lived. If the kingdom is going to do its real work, it needs to be remembered, it needs to be rehearsed and celebrated and trusted and actually lived in the particulars It's a sentiment. It's an option. It's a vision without a model. And worse, it can devolve into a shallow moralism, riding on the coattails of politics and culture instead of living them to shape them. The truth is, the easy way out of our calling is to fly over what's real and reduce the faith to a system of belief that just mixes with our existing opinions and our associations, but it never demands we take up the cross where it really matters and where it makes a difference. It's the cross of getting out of bed for the gospel in the unceremonious, patient work of adding leaven to the lump in word and deed, at home, at work, and with our neighbors right where we are. The cross refuses to retreat into oneself, a sense of virtue that amounts only to another drop of oratory in a vast sea of opinion and rhetoric and content. Honestly, just get a little too honest here it's the migraine just blame blame the migraine it's it's not it's not what i would i would say otherwise or maybe it is i don't know you guys know me honestly i believe that that this this idea this it might be the rankest heresy of our time the spirit of the presence of the church and distracted our efforts out there and our energy and our attention not just our loves but our attention out there our sense of the gospel out there. If you're at all bothered about celebrity preachers or bloated ministries and quasi-Christian political movements that breathe their own exhaust or the cozy relationship that the so-called American church has to the so-called American dream, you have this heresy to blame. It's a heresy of practical syncretism. The mixing, right? The melting certain aspects of the gospel together with platform and with power and prosperity into a golden calf. And like Aaron telling the Israelites in the wilderness, here are the gods that brought you up out of slavery. And you know what? He lied. And who paid for it? It's worth mentioning that in Paul's day, there were actually people being platformed. 
Paul called them the super apostles, particularly in church in Corinth. They were these trained debaters. They were on the circuit. They were grabbing the attention and the money of the church with smooth talk and talent and suggesting that Paul in his local, unimpressive ministry couldn't possibly be what the kingdom is about. They were saying he's a fool. But Paul says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. Paul is fine with that contrast between himself and them because the weak and poor and not so great at public speaking, he's letting the power of Christ do the work. He's leading past himself. And his argument boiled down to this. I showed up for you. I don't need recognition or power. I need Jesus, whose power is made perfect in weakness. I need you, and you need me. If we will see both the forest and the trees of the New Testament, folks, it will actually persuade us we don't need to platform our errands or our super apostles on whatever platform out there so that they can offer us attractive, wholesale, gospel-inspired solutions to all the problems that are coming at us all the time. We need the Pauls and the Timothys and the Onesimuses and the Philemons remembering the Lord and getting the dirt of kingdom seed planting under our fingernails. Yeah, there are problems. We don't put our head in the sand, but we had better get our hands in the dirt. We need leaders we know who are both accountable and responsible to people they know and are actually accountable to those people. The kingdom is rooted and thrives in the context of the personal and the cultural challenges God's people face the effects of their immediate history and their relationships and community they are nurturing, we are nurturing, often subversively, often seemingly foolishly. So if it's real, it's local. The kingdom will only happen somewhere. Certainly not out there in any real sense. The question is, will we have the wisdom and courage and utmost patience to lean into it together? I want to say this to you uh, as you right now, isn't it? There is only one way to address the woes of the church in our time. In America, there's really only one path to healing from its effects personally and corporately. It's not out there. It's right here and now together. In the particulars of the challenges and the opportunities of being a local church that exists with no more ambition than faithfulness to God and love for one another. That's hard and holy work, people. It's hard. Man, it's so hard right now, isn't it? With these with the distance that's starting to feel normal in some ways. And certainly we understand its reasoning. But what is the normal we're making or accepting? And what are we willing to do to be this kind of church that exists with no more ambition than faithfulness to God and love for one another? Love of, for our neighbors where he has placed us as members of a body of the gospel made flesh in the unglamorous one anothering that can only happen here and now somewhere with somebody. 
I believe the degree to which we can wade into complex issues in society or the church and actually have any lasting impact that's directly related to the actual proximity that we have to actual people in the time we invest in conversation and relationship and partnership. I'll close with a metaphor that actually emerged, emerged in my news email that I get virtually every day. You know, the big bipartisan trillion dollar infrastructure plan we need in America is coming. We're going to poof the money into existence, but as it turns out, we are not going to poof skilled laborers into existence. The actual flesh and blood people on the ground who know how to and can build the bridges and the roads because they are increasingly scarce. Interesting metaphor, isn't it? Fixing our roads is a nice and necessary endeavor. It's a great idea. But somebody actually has to do it somewhere. In the case of the kingdom, it's seeds and it's leaven. Somebody is just you and it's just me. And somewhere is right here at Villa, in San Susi, in Greenville. If I can appeal to you, if Paul can appeal to you today as we live in these anxious and divisive and distracting times, let's look around, look around again and keep looking around again and see your brothers and your sisters in the Lord and in the flesh. Let's be reconciled to one another. Let's not let the distance we've come to accept begin to feel normal. And let's continue to turn our attention to the knowledge of and the needs of our community. If you want to know more about how we do that, you can talk to her or me, or any one of us. We certainly can't put our heads in the sand when it comes to the groaning and the grasping of the wider world, but again, we need to put our hands in the dirt right here and right now. We need to embrace being finite, because guess what? You are, and it's the only real option that we have, but you know what? It's the best one anyway. And through it, as Paul says, what's in us makes its way through us to one another and for the life of the world. And I'm just here to remind you again, that's why you're here. Now, do you believe it? Lord, help us to believe it.